It's a short prayer, but uh, it's a short trip with my old school pulpit and uh, my bulky notes. And I know that someday we will probably get to do a better job with this whole preparation part, but uh, I can't see. So if I don't take the time to prep this for you guys, we're in big trouble because although I'm only 57 young years, uh, the eyes are starting to fight me a little bit. So thank you all for being here this morning. Just uh, I love I love kind of ministry at the stairs this morning, not on my notes, but like it's interesting to me like how the week goes. I mean, we had a chance yesterday, Rod and I, to drive up the mountain and spend some time with our men. We have a bunch of guys up at a men's retreat up at Alpine. Probably one of the most rural uh, roads, entry roads, Rod, that we've ever been on in our life. At least two or three different times on the road into camp, we thought we were lost and going into absolute just wilderness forest. So really grateful the guys continued all the way up there and got there. But they're without power this morning. Uh, went out last night, so they're without power, uh, running water, electricity, and food. So the last text I got from Charlie was, huh? Turn this down more? Okay. Uh, the last text I got from Charlie was, uh, camp feels more like North Korea, keep us in prayer. <laughs> Which is great because Rick is up there and Rick has a lot of Cambodian Vietnam experience. So I'm really hopeful that the guys will now bond and kind of, he said they're kind of separating who has food, who has water. And I'm just kidding. It's not like that at all. <laughs> it's men's retreat. It's a lot of really entertaining things. And we were really blessed. I really was. We, I was really high. I was really low. I was really excited. Uh, Bill's doing a fabulous job with the guys, and, uh, and they're being blessed. And if you are a guy kind of in the building, too, just so you know, there's a men's breakfast coming up on the 22nd in a couple weeks. That would be great, because I have, I have a feeling the guys coming down from retreat will be all fired up, and maybe if you didn't get a chance to go with them or want to hear what they have to talk about, hopefully we can all rally on the 22nd and have like a big, giant men's powwow. Like an old, old school men's retreat kind of on a Saturday morning at 7 o'clock. And there's food, of course, so come, we'll feed you. Now, this week we're in chapter 2, the second part of James. It's 14 through 26. And for me, James, even though it's only four books, uh, this particular component that we're going to touch today is probably the heart and soul of James's message. And if you guys are familiar with James, I'm sure you've probably heard this passage taught uh, many different times. But the last time I taught James was in 2018. So as always, as a pastor, I like to reference my notes, um, see what God put on my heart back in 2018. And it's interesting, in 2022, of about three and a half pages of notes, I used one, one paragraph, maybe three sentences, was all that was available from that message till now. That's how much God has kind of re-revealed this message to me. And so today I'm going to be sharing with you um, the phrase, your actions speak louder than words, right? You've all used that phrase before, your actions speak louder than your words. Well, in case you didn't know, that is absolutely from the scriptures, and this is exactly about the heart of what James is talking about. He wants you to realize that there's a lot of people in life that are going to go around saying, um, Jesus is the reason for the season, and Jesus is so good, and I have a Jesus bumper sticker, and look at my Jesus t-shirt, and that's all good, but if the life that you're living doesn't match up with the words that you are speaking, it's a serious problem. And so James is going to try to address that this morning. The problem that he's actually addressing is the concept of empty words, okay? Empty words. The idea that you would have this amazing opportunity to to speak the name of Jesus, to evoke the name of Jesus, which just the name of Jesus itself can move mountains, right? I mean, Jesus is the most powerful source in the world, but the way that you're actually using it or kind of leaning into it, it's, it's empty. It's void of the actual full potential of what it has. And so for James, it's all about the proof. 
And that's a really interesting concept for someone who kind of grew up his entire life in disbelief of his brother, right? His in initial relationship with his brother was total disbelief. But after the resurrection, when that change occurs for him, it becomes about living a life of proof, living a life that's actually substantiated by what you're saying and what you're doing. So for me, when it comes to Christianity, I want you to realize something. I'm going to say this phrase over here. Christians are the reason why the faith grows, and Christians are the reason why the faith slows, right? If we can't live a life that's attractive, void of external components, right? I'm not talking about what I look like or what you perceive me as. If we can't live a life that attracts people, then we're doing something to our faith that it wasn't intended. And this morning, I'd like to just make one simple reference to one couple of different people, really. Um, Tony and Merv, right? You don't have to have a giant conversation with Tony or Merv at any given time, or Ben, or any of our legends of faith back there in the back left corner. There's people in, in, that we're, you guys are blessed to see week after week, month after month, who will not come up and bash you or even trash you or even say anything about religion or scripture, but they will live a life that continually evokes something that draws you to them, right? I mean, if you can't understand that there's no place I'd rather be than here in your arms, then last week you missed out for Shandi or for Barbara or for any of the people that come, the broken people that come every week. On behalf of the broken people that come every week, may I just say to you, we don't come because we want you to pray for us. We want you to come because we're celebrating what God has done for us. Matter of fact, I actually learned something at the men's retreat. I shared it with Rod last time. First time I've ever heard this in my life. First time I've ever thought this. But I keep noticing something. In my current state, people keep praying for healing for me. And church, I don't want to say this rude or inconsistent or whatever, but I appreciate you pre praying for me, but Paul prayed three times for his thorn to be removed, right? And then at some point in time, he had to pray something else. Okay, I can't see, or I have tremors, I have glaucoma, I have something. What do you want me to do with it? And the Lord said, I want you to go grab Barnabas, I want you to go grab Timothy, and I want you to go grab Silas, because you're going to evoke the whole new program called mentoring and discipleship. And everything that I'm giving you to speak, they're going to write and they're going to learn, right? That ailment, that thorn was for a reason. And so at some point, praying that that thorn was removed was actually going against what God was actually intending or using it for. That's why we say Romans 8. All things work together. So I'm not speaking on behalf of all people that have sick or ailments, but on behalf of myself, I appreciate the prayers. But trust me, I have made peace with my sickness and I'm so grateful for it because it's giving me ministry where I would never be before. And to me, it's only about ministry. It's only about salvation. It's only about evoking the name of Jesus on behalf of those who are sick. So let's focus on one thing. Let's pray for the lost, right? Always think of my picture from last week. Let's think of those people swimming around the island that are drowning. Think about the people that are out there struggling this morning. You know, just this morning to come to church, I had a chance to pray with a couple of different people that just coming to church this morning was an act of real faith. It was a work that they had to do to just affirm their faith. And that's what we're going to talk about. How do we get away from a faith that's simply a claim to faith in words only, but has deeds? So that's the first question I want you to ask yourself before I pray. Is your faith that you have currently a faith that is in claim only, right? Is the faith that you that you're living out right now, that you call your Christian walk or your Christian, is it actually just a faith that's out living out in word only? So let me pray, and then we'll start with the first three verses from 14 to 17. Father God, first and foremost, I just thank you for letting me and Rod spend some time with the guys yesterday. I pray that you be with 
all of them up there, whether they have, you know, Wi-Fi, water, power, or electricity, Father, they have you. And I pray that you would do something with um, the group of guys that really took the time to just say, hey, we're going to rearrange our schedules and we're going to sleep in bunk beds. Uh, we're going to be slightly uncomfortable, but we really have a desire to become kingdom men. And I pray on behalf of the entire church this morning, Father, that for whatever reason we're struggling, for whatever thing ailment or scenarios kind of bringing us down, Father, that we would simply, like Paul, that we would make our requests known. You know, we have not because we ask not, but we want to ask. But then at some point, Father, we want to make peace with that and realize that your process of refining, your process of sanctifying us may not be what our understanding can ever comprehend. And so, Father, you know, on behalf of the patriarchs in our own church, people that continue to teach me and show me, Father, thank you for the opportunity to realize that our life needs to be more than words. Even if they're beautiful words spoken eloquently, it, it needs to be more than words, Father. We need to have the faith, the walk that goes with it. May everything that we study, listen, learn, and uh, hope to do this morning bring honor and glory to and through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. All right, so here we go. Starting in verse 14. I'm doing, new, somebody asked last week, I'm a New American Standard guy, so New American Standard and NIV, pretty much the only two versions that I'll read from. Uh, if you have any questions about that, we can talk offline at any time. Um, what is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, it's dead, being by itself. So the first question, are we a people, like I said, that kind of just profess faith alone, but do not have the works? Now, there's going to be no shortage in our lives of people who profess faith. I don't know about you, but it seems like in the world we live in right now, there's no shortage of professed Christians. And so that can be really confusing to people because if everyone thinks everyone's Christian, based on the way that most people are acting, it's not really attractive. To me, what I'm talking about attractive, I'm not talking about the external look. I'm talking about Merv. I'm talking about Tony. I'm talking about people that live a life different than how other people live. And the quality of that life is so attractive that it literally draws people in. It draws people into a conversation to say, hey, I understand you have kidney disease, but you seem pretty happy for someone that has kidney disease. How is that working out? How, what, what are you doing differently, right? That conversation say, I notice you work here and all the other people that work here, you work differently here. Like you clean the counters and you really do your job well. Whatever it is you do, you do well enough that it draws people into a conversation and says, I notice something about the quality of your life. What I'm saying is what James is saying is that most people who claim Christianity are living so much like the world around them that they're not attracting anything. Matter of fact, they're just blending in. And that is not our goal, church. That is not our goal to blend in. If we're going to speak the name of Jesus, if we're going to evoke the name of Jesus, we need to live a life that's not, not just void of empty words, but we need to be conscious about what empty words are all about. That's why he says if someone has faith and he has no works, can that actually save him? So the question that James is proposing is, if you say you have faith and you have no works, what would, how would that be justified before me and other people? me before men let's just say men other people right if you say it and i don't see it then for me that answers the question you're not and that's a pretty harsh statement right he's writing to the first church he's writing to the first believers and he already whacked him over the head with this first part of the letter saying hey i know favoritism didn't seem like that big of a deal to you 
But let me explain to you what favoritism is. It's the willing acceptance of sin. You're saying it's pretty minimal. I mean, the society that we're living in, it's the haves and the have-nots. I mean, the, the people of priority sit in the front and the people of less priority sit in the back. That's just the way our society is. What's the big deal? And he's saying, well, here's the big deal. When we minimize sin and we accept sin in our life, we're not just guilty of favoritism. We're guilty of the entirety of the law. See, the excitement out of that first part of the letter. Remember, this is a letter. We broke down the letter so that we could see it in different components. The scribes broke down the letter so that every chapter could be uh, counted. All the words could be counted, be accountable for. So the first part of the letter was simply setting up the second part, saying, and because of that now, what you say and what you do not only makes a difference, but it's the difference between an effective witness and no witness at all. I have like two people in my life. I started to think about this. I have two people in my life that every time I see them, every time, regardless of what the situation is, they never start by asking me how I'm doing or what's going on. They always start with some kind of Bible verse. They always start with some kind of spiritual insight for me. And the most interesting thing about that is they're the two people on the planet Earth that I get the least amount of biblical truths from, right? And the reason why is the quality of life that I see them living is so void of anything of the fruits of the Spirit that in some ways, it almost becomes like a barrier for kind of even good conversation. Because I just know they're going to whack me with some kind of verse at some point. Or they're going to claim some kind of spiritual enlightenment. Like, God is being so good. And then talk about the relationship that they're in, and it's so bad. Right? It's like, where's the transparency to just say, you know what? I'm having a really rough day today. And by the way, if you ever come to me and say you're having a really rough day, I get you. I'm, I, let's just be transparent. Let's be honest. Because empty words don't help anybody. I really appreciate that too. The first week was my first week as the official kind of step in pastor. And there was a lot of words that were shared with people that I usually don't talk to after the service. And I really do appreciate that. But remember, the goal is not just empty words to one another. It's encouragement to one another. It's true encouragement. The way I'm living, the way you're living, how can we help one another? How can iron sharpen iron in each other's life? If I'm iron and you're plastic, if I'm iron and you're balsa wood, if I'm iron and you're glass, we're, gonna be, we're not going to be able to sharpen one another. We're not going to be able to be truthful and help raise one another up in the word of God, right? And we have to realize that. James is saying, what is the actual value if someone comes to you and says, I have genuine need? And you say, I acknowledge your need, be well. That only not only doesn't work for me, but I started thinking like this, um, I met someone at Donuts. I'm, I'll make a false story kind of true. I met someone at Donuts, and, uh, and they said, hey, I'm a handyman. I said, oh, welcome to the church. Nice to meet you. Super good. I, my name is such and such and whatever. And I said, all right, we'll see you around. Uh, later in that week, it happens to be raining. One of the few days it's raining and going down Newport Boulevard, and I see the individual on the side of the road with a sign that says, handyman, car broke, cold, need food. And I pull over, and I just got my car washed, and I'm a little bit upset because, you know, it's raining in Costa Mesa, and You know, I rolled down my window and I said, hey, dude from the donuts, it's me, Pastor Jeff. It's nice to see you. What's going on? Oh, I lost my volume. Hey, Pastor Jeff, what's going on? I said, oh, nothing. I I see you're everything okay. And he's like, no, I'm cold and I'm hungry and I need work and whatever. And I'm like, oh, dude, well, be well, be warm, be blessed. And I rolled up my window and I'm like, see you Sunday. (laughs) Like, is he coming back to church? Is he going to faith? Is he, is he in any way, shape, or form talking about anything religious to anyone and the value that Christianity has to him? 
Matter of fact, especially as the senior pastor, if that's the representation I gave to him as the senior pastor, he'd be like, not only is the church void of anything, but leadership is void of everything. And James is saying, that's ridiculous. Like you guys laughed before I even gave you the story, right? It just sounds ridiculous. But yet that's what we're doing. And then I thought, oh, you know, there's going to be someone in the church. Pastor Jeff, you know, you're a bleeding heart. You, you love to help everyone. You, you, Pastor Jeff, if you help everyone, you're going to burn out. My gosh, I've been told I'm going to burn out and I'm going to crash and I'm going to, in the last few weeks, church, I get it, right? It was the old starfish story. There's 2,000 starfish on the beach. You're walking Balboa and you see 2,000 starfish walked up and you're walking with your friend and you start, you pick one up every once in a while and you fling it in the water and like, what are you doing? It's useless. You can't help all those star. I can't help all of them, but I just helped that one, Right? I just helped that one. I mean, 2,000, I get that it's overwhelming. But it's simple. Church, life should be simple. The words shouldn't be void of what we're saying. If God puts someone in front of us, and we realize that person has a need, the onus on that need is on us. We don't, we're not trying to help everyone. Everyone will have the opportunity to be helped one at a time. And when they come your way, and when they come my way, the onus is on us to reach out, when they make an effort to come to church for the first time, if they don't get met by someone, if someone doesn't shake their hand, if someone doesn't offer to take them to lunch, if someone doesn't introduce themselves, the onus church is on us because we're a church with empty words. And when our empty words and our empty life come together and we want to stand before God one day and say, hey, I did it, you know, I did this Christian life, he's going to be like, no, that wasn't the Christian life I was talking about. The Christian life that I'm talking about is go make baptize and teach because that's the only thing that doesn't make noise if you do everything else you're just a banging gong making noise church we don't need any more noise verse 17 says dead faith is a life that has no works that's it no works no faith and so let's quantify works reading god's word does that sound painful to you up at men's retreat this week, a gentleman confessed that he's been around faith for 40 years. 40 years. He's been raised Christian, walked away from it, and all kinds of in-between. Three months ago, he made a profession to step back into his life and say, I'm going to read my Bible five minutes instead of watching the news first thing in the morning. Just five minutes. So that I can put God's word into motion in my life, so that I know what to pray about, how I'm going to serve, and how I'm going to act for the rest of the day. And three months ago, he said, my entire life changed. He was able to change his life, his lifestyle, and things that had been a conundrum for him of insurmountable odds three months ago by making a commitment to read five minutes. An act of work, an act of service, an act of faithfulness is reading God's word. The problem that I have with that is if we only have head knowledge, we're in a class of danger because the Bible says that demons have head knowledge. And think about that. They don't just have head knowledge. They have the ability to shudder at the word of God, shudder at Jesus himself, right? There's a couple of different times in the Bible where we see this. Uh, the demon acknowledges Jesus from afar. Lord, what will you have to do with me? It's not my time. He already knows who he is, what he's able to do. And the idea that they shudder means they actually have like an awe, a reverential awe, fear of what God can do. But does that ever save them? Does a demon actually have the opportunity to be saved? No. 
They don't have free will. So the warning for that is it's plausible for you to have plenty of head knowledge about who Jesus is, plenty of head knowledge about what Jesus has done, and even reverential awe of saying, Jesus one day will have the ability to reconcile my soul for eternity and still not be a professed believer. If you're going to be close in anything in life, and I think hand grenades in horseshoes is the only thing being close counts for anything, right? If you're going to be close in anything in life, make sure it's not faith. Well, I knew a pastor, and I went fishing with a pastor, and I went to the fishing sale this weekend with a pastor. By the way, we had a fishing sale in the parking lot this week, and hundreds of people saw the church, and I was there the whole time. But I can tell you, um, God is good, and fishermen are interesting. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to do that. It was an interesting test of church on Saturday at 5.30 in the morning. Also, sorry about the alarm going off from 5.30 till 6 in the morning. Sorry about that neighborhood. God is good, and the problem with this is going to be this. Matthew 7, 21, a verse that I don't like to share too often in church because I think it scares people more than it helps, but pretty appropriate for this passage. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Right? There's times and places where the kind of rubber hits the road, church, and this is one of those kind of places. In this passage of this scripture, depending on what you actually think about reading God's word, about praying God's word, about service, maybe even tithing. I've been here five years. I don't think we've ever taught once on tithing. Now, thankfully, you guys tithe, and it's a good thing, but I mean, if we're not teaching people what God's word says, if we're not explaining the responsibilities of what it means to be a follower of Christ, and you've come up with some kind of perception that's not true, then your life and your works are going to be a struggle. And I don't want to make this a message about tithing, but I'll just say this. Tithing means something. The word means something. If you don't know what it means, then we need to talk offline or you need to you get your small group to kind of share with you because if the word of God means something, if the word of God says something, it needs to be something that we're able to do and have the right heart about it. James is saying, what's the proof? Show me the proof. Justify, right? Justify what it is that you're claiming to be true. Now, James is just a man. James is just a man like you and me. But James is saying, look, I've spent my whole life being opposed to my brother. Now that I'm for my brother, let me explain something. My brother is the real deal. This is going to happen. He's already beaten death. I've already seen him beat death. So let me tell you something. It's really important that what we say and what we do can be seen. And so that's continually his thing. What is the proof? What, what is the thing that shows people that you have a changed heart? The Bible says that when you come to Christ, that you're a new creation in Christ, right? What is the proof of that? I just want to focus on prayer for one minute. Now, prayer is one of those things today in the world that we live in where people say, we've done all we can, let's pray. Right? Have you heard it? I, I heard it in the last 24 hours, I heard it twice. We've done all we can do. We've We've taken them to as many rehabs as we can. We've, we've gone and helped them. We've brought food. We've done all we can do. Let's pray. I want to tell you something about prayer and what James says about prayer. The prayer of a righteous person availeth much. And the prayer of one person held the reign, not for an hour, not for a day, but for years. One person, Right? The prayer of a group of people one day when faced with overwhelming odds, a city that was so fortified that regardless of the battering rams, catapults, or whatever was available in the time, there was nothing that would have t t taken these walls down. 
rather than fortifying and coming up with a plan of what they could do and masterminding some kind of contraption they can build, they heard the Lord say, walk around the building and pray. Really? That doesn't sound like much of a game plan. That's our mindset. And yet one day, and by the way, Jericho is a city that was never discovered in archaeology, and then, then a couple of years ago they finally found the ruins. And if you haven't looked, you should look and study. The archaeology ruins of Jericho show one amazing fact. Ruins. This is the actual place. You know what it shows? The walls caved in. That would be a problem if you and Israel are walking around the outside and the walls caved out. Right? A lot of your army and your forces would have been... But it caved in, and it actually created a natural bridge into the fortification. Prayer did that. If you and me really cared about prayer as much as James is saying, if you understand the works of God and how these things actually work, when I say works, you're thinking, oh, go plant a tree. It's not just plant a tree. It's everything that you do. It's plant a tree in such a way that you share with someone that just the tree and how a tree works and how fruit works is of God. Anything and everything that we do, we do it to and for God. If you prayed in that way and you really had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say, hey, mountain, move. And that's why I say, I'm not saying prayers are wasted on someone who has an ailment. I'm simply saying, when we've prayed enough, and we've prayed earnestly, and the ailment still exists, my brother Bill, for example, all of us have prayed earnestly for Bill, and we actually saw a miraculous healing at one point happen in his whole, in the, when, when that situation happened. But when it comes to, like, migraines now, at some point, Bill, like myself, has to make peace with the fact that maybe we should just be focusing our prayers on the lost people around us now right? Because we, we are making peace with the fact that all things are working together for God. And God is doing something in our weakness. When he comes up here to play sometimes, those of us who know Bill, we can see it. Like, we can see it. Like, you probably can see it in me. And you see it. And what? He keeps playing. And he works through it. And the band knows, like I know, I definitely know Bill enough to know when it's happening. And you know what that does for me? Strengthens me. It gives me resolve. You watch Tony walk up those stairs with his Thing. You don't feel sorry for him. Oh, here comes Tony and his thing. I don't feel, I, I have never felt sorry for Tony walking up the stairs. You know what I feel when I see Tony walking up the stairs? Kingdom man. That's how I want to do it. If I get that way, if it gets bad, that's how I want to do it. Merv. COVID, COVID, COVID. COVID, COVID, COVID. The doors all of a sudden sneak open. During those two weeks, I think we were closed like maybe two weeks, eight people snuck in every week. You know who snuck in? The old the sick, the unhealthy. Because they knew. These, this is my work. This is what I get to do for God. I don't have to do this. This is what I get to do. And I'm going to show the other church what works actually mean, what my life actually means, with no words. Think about who J James ends up using here. The second part of this question is, is the life you're living showing real proof? Is it showing real proof? Because God will show real proof in a, an interesting group of people in the second half of this passage. He shows it in the patriarch Abraham. Patriarch, father of a nation. By the way, Abraham means father of multitudes. How did his parents know that? That seems pretty interesting, like for a name. Father of multitudes, wow. And Rahab, which by the way, for your notes, is rehab. Because Google spell check doesn't recognize Rahab. Now, she might have needed rehab, but it's actually Rahab. She was a prostitute. You have a prostitute and the father of nations being used 
to build this argument for who God is and how he works in people. Let me read. It's very powerful stuff here. Verse 21. When our father Abraham, was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered his son Isaac up at the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of his works, faith was perfected. And then the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as he was called a friend of God. You see that person justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, Rahab, the prostitute, was not justified by works also when she received the messengers and then sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also is faith without works dead. Contrast. Man and woman, right? Abraham, Rahab. A friend of God, Abraham, friend of God. An enemy of God, an Israelite, a Jew. A Canaanite. The Canaanites are who they're coming in to conquer. A religious person. Abraham, very religious. And Rahab, as far wicked as you could possibly be. A known active prostitute as she enters into the story. Yet God found something in common with both of them. Through their works of service, this is what we determine. They served God when called. They were rewarded by God for that effort. And then God had them written down so they were remembered forever. That's a pretty good encouragement, church. When God asks you to do works, and by the way, if God asks you to do a work and you refute the work and you say, I'm not able to do that work, that doesn't mean the work doesn't get done. Right? I mean, when we need volunteers across the street, if you don't do that work, someone has to do the work. But the blessing that goes with doing the work and having that attitude of gratitude about what God's asking us to do, it just gets passed along to that individual. We didn't have donuts for a couple of years, and I know for some of you that made Sunday a really difficult morning. <laughs> Besides the police department, I think pastors and churches are probably the most donut-dependent people on the planet Earth. But I will tell you something about recently having... A certain family, which I will, I will leave them off book. You should just know when you get to it. The happiness and joy of donuts lately is like the happiness and joy of communion. There are two families now that have decided that donut happiness and communion happiness is something that equally makes them grateful to serve one another. And you know what? Both those families are nameless, but I know both of you families, and I want you to realize something. It's not just that you do work, and it's not just that you do work to the Lord. It's that you do it joyous. Right? Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. So there's a way to cut donuts and serve coffee that's unto the Lord? Go look. Go watch and see. Many, Merv in that whole group was the coffee group for many years. And watching Merv carry 50 pounds of coffee across the street every week, I, I was traumatic. I mean, just down the things, walking across the street, boiling hot coffee. I'm like, Merv, didn't care, right? Jack, you were with that whole group. That group, Ben, Jack, and whatever, every single morning. It, when we pass the torch onto someone, when we have the opportunity, you could just be an usher. You could be a greeter. Nothing is just minimized in the kingdom of God. Whatever you do, when you do it well, whether you're the top of the pile, I mean Abraham, top of the pile, if, the, if there was any kind of status available 2,000 years ago, so I'm a patri patriarch, the top of the pile, prostitute, bottom of the pile. And James says, you know what, guys? I was an atheist. I was an agnostic. I was antagonistic to faith my entire life. I didn't believe. I didn't know. 
And then I didn't follow. But somehow God's not only using me, but I'm going to start the church in Jerusalem. I'm going to start this whole thing. God can use all of us if we do what? Work. We've got to do work, church. It's praying. It's tithing. It's reading. It's serving. And it's doing all those things with an attitude of gratitude because the one common factor is they answered God's call. They were rewarded. And now they're remembered forever. It's cool that we have a plaque out there, too, for Merv and Jean. Every time we come up the ramp, I always think about that. What a great thing to do to be remembered for God. And it's really kind of interesting to me because Paul is kind of using Abraham in this way that says, okay, I'm going to answer the question. Uh, by the way, did you notice Paul said we're saved by grace alone, right? And James says, well, but works without, faith without works is dead, and it sounds kind of conflicting. But the reality of those two questions was Paul was actually saying, how is Abraham justified before God? He, he stood before God and he was justified before God because God answered him. He was, it was by the unseen, right? So the question that Paul is asking is, how does faith work when it's unseen? And the question that James is asking is, but how does it work when it's seen? You tell me you have faith and I don't see any works, then that's, that's seen, right? Two different questions. Sounds similar, but they're asking two different questions. So there's no conflict there. And for those of you theologians who want to go study Martin Luther's uh, total observation, there's probably about 500 pages of documentation on this argument between the two, uh, where Luther originally called James the straw epistle because of this passage, and there's a tremendous amount of conflict. It's been reconciled later in Luther's life as he finally came back to kind of see that there was no conflict. But just because you don't understand the question, that Paul was talking about unseen, faith unseen. You don't need to do anything for that. You believe, and from that, faith works flow. James is saying, okay, once faith has happened, those works that flow will result in you actually doing the work of God joyously. Abraham did it. He did it joyously. He put his trust in God. He was willing to sacrifice his actual heir. Why was he willing to sacrifice something he had waited his whole life for? Well, think about that. Abraham's wife was barren for 90 years, right? And God has a conversation with him and says, I'm going to make your wife have a child, and that child will have descendants numerous as the stars. Well, when God made that come true for Abraham, regardless of what Abraham heard from God from that point on, he had the confidence to say, hey, look, I can do whatever God asks me to do. We were talking about this, me and Rod, as we were driving home last night. Can you imagine what it was like for Isaac as they were walking up the mountain? The way I read it is Isaac's carrying the wood like on his back. And he's continuing to ask his dad, where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? I mean, he knows what they're doing. He's made, I'm sure they've made sacrifices together. But where's the sacrifice? God will provide. Right? You get all the way up there, he sets the wood down. This is a pretty dramatic scene, right? You talk about the drama of the Bible. This is a pretty dramatic scene. I don't picture him raising, I told Rod, I don't picture him raising the knife up and then thinking about it. I picture him raising the knife up and going. And then I picture the Lord himself saying, no, not necessary. I got it. I just wanted to see how committed you were to it. Because he was committed to the point that if God could give, then God could take and then give back, right? He had God's commitment that this kid was going to be the heir to Israel. He was going to have descendants so, so numerous, it was going to be whatever God said he's going to do. Church, you don't have to like the work that God has given you, but you need to have that same kind of tenacity and commitment to it. If God asks us to do it, then who are we to say no? 
I'm not going to use myself as an example, but sometimes God asks you to do things that's not what you planned on doing. Right? Who's going to go? Who's going to stand in the gap then if you won't go? If God's calling you to go, who's going to go? He'll get someone else, and the blessing will come with it. But I'm telling you, when you go, it's rewarded, and it's remembered. And that's a good place to be. James comes on and says, you know what? I like Abraham too. But I like Abraham because he was willing to do the work. So we're both using the same guy for the same reason, but we just see two different components of his life. It's interesting, uh, Paul actually uses him in Genesis 15, and then James uses him in Genesis, Genesis 21. So it's about 25 years apart between that, but they're both using the same man to say, in this man's life is the affirmation of both of our stories. You have to do the work. If you do the work, God will do the blessing. I talked about the grapevines about two years ago with you guys. Remember the grapevines? Italian grapes are on dry, arid land and forces the roots to go down deep. And in that ability to go down deep and leach water out, that, that sucking of the nutrients, that working you know, to get the fluids back up there, it makes that vine so much more rich in flavor. Nothing you can do about that. That's part of the reason why it's such a sought-after wine compared to the American wine that's drip-fed at the surface. And the root ball stays within the first few inches of the soil. And because the root ball has to do very little work, it's still a vine. It still produces wine. But the California wines, traditionally in the world that we live in, are not sought after because they're so lacking in flavor. Like, Pastor Jeff, you're using a wine example for church. (laughs) The Bible says, be not drunk with wine, by the way. I'm not afraid of wine. I come from a long line of alcoholics. I myself drink zero, but... I come from a law. I'm not afraid of it. I understand Jesus' first miracle to be involved with it. So the significance of that story to me is the Christian church is a lot like the Christian vine. We've been drip-fed so long, and we are so superficial that when we hear a passage like this, it's like it's borderline offensive when we tell someone they have to work, they have to serve. They hear have to, and they're like, because the natural inclination, anytime we tell a child to do something is what? I'm not going to do it. You, you were 10 years old the first time your mom told you to take out the trash. I'm not going to do it. So you're just going to let it back up inside of the house and turn your house into a dump? No, I mean, at some point you're going to take the trash out. But I always waited till after she told me to do it. Why? Well, what is in our DNA that makes us so rebellious to being told what to do? Church, the whole, everything in the Bible is telling us what to do. It's not telling us because it doesn't like us. It's telling us like our parents because it loves us. And it's encouraging us to do these things because these are the things that we need to do. And I told you this. uh, If you haven't heard it, then I'm going to tell you again. My pastor taught me 12, 14, 20 years ago. How long was Tom? 20 years ago? Take out the trash like this. Look inside the trash as you're walking to the trash. Oh, butter. Oh, man. Thank you, Lord, for that toast, man. That panini sourdough bread. Mm, That was delish. Oh, my electric bill's in there. Hey, thank you, Lord, for letting me pay that. I like electricity, like the guys up at the cabin right now. Electricity is useful. I'm really grateful for this. Ooh, coffee, donut shot. Mmm, me likey. I'm going to go back in and get in. Thank you for my Keurig having a stack of those puppies available. You know what I'm saying? By the time I get to the trash, I'm the happiest guy in the world. And then you're like, why, why does he take the trash out? Why do I do the laundry? Why do I go pick up the trash around this building every Sunday? Why do I pick up dog stuff and everything else? Because I've learned, I've taught myself to appreciate everything that God has given me. Now, I don't appreciate dog owners that do that to the church. 
but I like dogs. And I'm a steward of God's house. It's not my church. It will never be my church, not yours either, right? He calls, he calls us his bride, so I think that's ownership. That's my bride. No one else gets to call my bride. My, that's my bride. He says we're his bride, so it's his church. My stewardship of that church is saying thank you to show you if I can pick up trash, then I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it well. Matter of fact, after church, I plan on getting the sweep broom and cleaning that whole back plot. I want it completely clean. I'm going to do it myself. I'm not afraid of doing works. Works are a way that I get to share with the Lord and show the Lord that I love him. Belief in God changed Rahab's ways. Rahab was a known prostitute. That's all she was known for. Rahab doesn't just become a friend of God. She hangs the scarlet cord out the window. And do you remember the last word she says to the Israelite army as they're leaving? Remember me when you come back. Who does that sound like? It sounds a lot like the thief on the cross that makes me so mad. Who didn't say the ABC prayer. Who didn't do the you know, Romans road. Who didn't come down and get baptized. He didn't do anything that people say you have to do. But he said, remember me. He inclinated his heart towards God. And God said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that prostitute that day went from Rahab, the Canaanite, an enemy of God, to seeing the value of God. Remember, she even had a conversation with them as they were there. We've heard about your God. Our hearts are melting with fear. She was ready, and she moved. Motion, obedience, works. She moved towards God. Hang the cord. Real faith produces real works. And church, it's real simple. Don't make it complex. How complex is it not? The last verse says this. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also is works dead. So here's a question for you. What do you call a body with no spirit? Dead. Okay? Church would be a lot easier if we would just see it, hear it, and then make peace with it. So what he's saying is, you, if you're going to claim faith and not do faith, then you're not helping faith. What would God rather have? Someone who claims faith and does nothing about their faith, or a prostitute who's living completely antagonistic to faith, but when God calls, responds to what God's will is. Remember what Matthew 7, 21 says. The warning is pretty clear. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? I guarantee you there's some swindlers on TV. There's some people in the world right now that are swindling the flock. They are fleecing the flock. Thank goodness we're not going to be standing behind them that day and watch what God's behemothy judgment is all about. Right? We have an advocate that will stand in for us. You and I are not going to be hung out to dry for everything. We know we have an advocate. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ. But in light of that, the way that we live and the things that we do, need to, it needs to make sense. So I ask you this. Do you want to be someone who talks the faith and walks no faith? Or do you want to be someone who doesn't say much but spends their time doing God's will? I want to encourage you to take the second option. Talk a little less. Walk a little bit more. Doesn't it sound a little bit like his first thing? Hear a little bit more talk a little bit less you know what else you learn when you listen a little bit more what people are actually asking becomes more clear part of my chaplaincy training is i don't talk until i listen and i only talk relative to what's being asked 
And you know what sometimes people that are really broken and struggling want? No response. Sometimes the appropriate response is, I hear you. What, what about the response? You, you're 57, you're a pastor, you're, you're family, you got, give me, no, I hear you. I'm trying to develop a dependency in you like with everyone else that God has the answer and that God's answer is all you need. But you've got to understand something. You've got to inclinate towards him. One final story, prodigal son. You wake up one morning, you've spent your inheritance, you're covered in pig slop, you're feeding the pigs, and you're thinking, what have I done? I don't know what he's done. I don't know what you've done, but I know this. At some point he realized that as bad as it was and as horrific as it was going to be in his mind to face his dad, that the slaves in his dad's house were still living better than him as the slave that he had become. The work that he did that day was simply just to repent of the life choices that he had made and say, I'm going back to dad and I'm going to take whatever I get because it's got to be better than what I got, right? When we hear works, our American minds are, it's negative. And when people talk about heaven sometime and we talk about the work of our hand being blessed, talking about with this rod yesterday the new heaven that he's going to create the new earth that he's going to create is here it's like the garden the difference is the work of our hands will be blessed everything that we do will be blessed as it was intended we have a pretty poor conception of work right we have a pretty poor conception of reading tithing serving whatever it is about god and somehow it feels more like stuff we have to do you don't have to do any of it church you get to do it. I don't have to do works for my wife. I don't have to do works for my grandson. I don't have to do works for my family. I get to, right? And hopefully he will get to watch me one day as he grows up and see how his dad and his mom do it and how his grandmother and grandfather do it. And he will learn something in that that will be bigger than the first conversation we have about faith. I don't know if Rahab's parents grew her up and taught her something different, but at that opportunity, when she hung the cord and she said, remember me, she inclinated herself. She moved herself towards the father. And the father doesn't see him at afar and says, whew, smells, needs a bath, whatever. The father sees him at afar and recognizes who it is, the son that he has longed for, and he goes to him. He goes to us. Right? But we came to him. Yeah, you, you had to walk from wherever the pig, pig trough was to the transitional bridge or whatever it was to get in front of him. You, there is work required by what our spirit's calling us to do. But when we get near the Father and he sees us, he comes to us. That is such a cool example of work that I thought there's nothing else in the Bible that would be better, but there's one more. Remember when the guys brought their friend who was paralyzed to Jesus and the crowd was so big? so big that you couldn't bring your paralyzed friend to Jesus. That was the whole point of the day. Hey, dudes, rally around. We're going to pick him up, and we're going to carry him. And we've heard that this Nazarene guy heals people. We get there, and it's just too massive. Well, I quit. I mean, you just, you're not going to get through that line. You're never going to see him. There's nothing we can do. The group re-rallies. What can we do? What are our options? Go up. Yeah. Go up and do what? Cut, cut all down. I love how the group is trying to rationalize just how to get him near. Does, by the way, did the group get anything for that? Was it about the group at all? Do we even know their names? Can we even reward or remember them? 
Let me reread you just a portion of the story. Then a paralytic was brought to him, carried by four men, and they were unable to get him to Jesus through the crowd. So they uncovered the roof above him, made an opening, lowered him down, and the paralytic was on his mat when Jesus saw their faith. Did you catch that from the story before? Jesus saw their faith. They're on the roof, folks. Does Jesus have x-ray vision? I don't know. But what he saw was faith in each rope. He saw faith in works. We've got to just change our attitude towards works. You've got to change your attitude towards getting up on Sunday or whatever it is that you have to do every day to serve God. It's a blessing to do that. Blessing or a burden. It's perspective. Every single time, blessing, burden, perspective. You get to serve God. We get to serve God. We get to say thank you for salvation every day that we do when we serve. But I, I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I don't cheat. I pay my taxes. I do. That's great. But life is more than morality. Life is more than head knowledge of who Jesus is, what he's done, or what he could do to you, right? It's got to get here. This is, this is a difficult place, right? The Bible says the heart is proverbially wicked right you don't teach a two-year-old to be bad right we have to teach our kids how to be good because what's ingrained in us is sin amen james is saying hey look when faith works the way that it's supposed to it's a joy to serve next time you see one of those patriarchs in our church doing something that's above your understanding like how could they do it think about it they've come to an understanding of what it means to serve god Wear a boot to church for two years, right, Sanji? Two years you've been hobbling. Two years, and yet you come every Sunday. Where's the blessing in that? The blessing is for two years you've been able to show the church that regardless of the adversity that I face every morning, I'm going to hobble in there and sit down because there's no place I'd rather be. It's only good because God is good. It's only loving because we know where love comes from. It doesn't matter whether you're the patriarch or the prostitute. We are all in God's eyes, valued, loved, and adored. So much so that he died before you knew him. He died for us. Jesus died for us before you knew him. So you, could, you can dismiss in any way that you have anything to do with salvation. It is a gift of God. But just like when I receive a gift from my wife or my family, when I receive a gift, there's a sense of gratitude that comes with that gift right? You give me a shirt that I don't like, I'm probably going to wear it, right? Because it's gratitude for the gift. It's gratitude for the thought. And then every time I wear that item, I get to think of the person who bought that for me or, or cared about me enough. And I think, Lord, be with that person. Thank you for their, their kind heart that has the, one of the five gifts and their gift is giving. And my gift is receiving. So it works out really good. We're, we're a good team. I'm just kidding. I buy all my clothes at the thrift store, and then I give all my clothes afterwards to somebody else. I'm, I'm not that clothes fascinated. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here, and I'm going to close with prayer. And I want you to I want you to move this so that Robin doesn't be seen on TV. I want you to think of this last thing. Final question. If I asked you right now to sit up here, panel board, church goes, and then I walked around with a microphone. And I said, 
Romy, can I have you sit up here? And then I just went out to church. Open mic. What do you see when you see a fellow brother or sister's life? What are the things, what are the proof that you see about faith in that? Would that be traumatic for you or would that be joyous? And you're like, well, Pastor Jeff, the truth is most people don't like public speaking, so any form of affirmation from a group would be traumatic. Okay, I get that, but moving past that. For the sake of just for you processing, you sit up here and you say, church, speak truth to me. Would that be traumatic or would that be joyous? And then think about the people who talk a lot and then think about the people who walk a lot. And then ask yourself today, okay, whatever position I'm in, good, bad, or indifferent, prostitute, patriarch, whatever. No, we're like this. In front of God, we're this. What can I do today? In light of what James is saying, what can I do today to make it so that my life becomes more about Christ? So that the unlost, unsaved, lost people in my life can actually have a hope that's in me that I've had the whole time. I have the hope of Jesus Christ in me. How can I get that hope to the people around me? So that they can get that hope to the people around them. One final comment from camp last night. A gentleman said, I had to leave my friends and my former life behind. Because it was bringing me down. And everyone was like, hey, that sounds like a great answer. Good job. A gentleman in the front. The gentleman who had just started praying about his life three months ago. Raised his hand and he said, you know what? I disagree. Silence hit the room. Go ahead and explain your answer. I have to go back and get my friends because they don't know what I know. They haven't figured out that what we used to do for the last 25 years together, and I did it with them, it's not right. It's not what God wants. They're lost. I was lost. I'm going back. And I started crying when I told them the answer. I said, you know what? We're not really good friends anymore. As a society, we have lots of acquaintances, but we're not really good friends anymore. I said, the Bible talks about a relationship between Jonathan and David where they were such good friends, it was scary. A lot of men are uncomfortable with that friendship. But if you actually have a good male or a good female friend, someone in your life that's actually stood with you, the least you can do is go back and get them. Don't leave somebody high and dry. You see a brother or sister on the side of the road, you see a brother or sister in your life that has need, Tell them, be warm, be filled, God bless. Don't, why? That's hypocrisy. Do something. What can you do? What can we do? We can pray. No, start with prayer. Start, bring them, to, bring them in your, hug them, and start praying with them. And then say, what can we actually do? What do you actually need today? You need a turkey? You need food? I'll, I'll, I'll order you food. I'll have food delivered to you tonight. What do you need today? Let's just start with right now. What do you need right now? And try to meet that need. If you need to pray, I'm going to be up here as always. Uh, Tom or someone, in, uh, have one person in the back if you want to pray. But if God's touching you on the hearts this morning, if you need to make a profession of faith, if God is telling you to do something, do it today. Don't wait. You don't have tomorrow. But let's, let's stop talking about faith, and let's just try to bring it back down to the basics. Let's just do faith. Okay? Be there for a friend. Be there for a loved one. Show up at church when you're not feeling good. It matters. Hebrews 10, don't forsake the gathering. It matters, church. You matter to us. You matter to me. And I'm grateful to serve you. Let's worship.
coming today. Hey, look, next week we're going to find out how to start forest fires. So if you're a pyro, if you're curious about fires in any way, you're going to want to come back. Um, James doesn't let up. It's going to keep going. The power of the tongue next week. I hope you're here to be with us. If you need to stay and pray, I'm always available afterwards. God bless you. Love you, church. We'll see you next week.